Hello, I've converted the webinar that we did last night into a podcast. Please enjoy the presentations from May Connolly, Tim Hunt and Ross Kingwell. Economist from AGIC, uh, he's the author of more than 100 journals and book chapters. Uh, and many conference papers. Um, he's the AGIX Economics and Business Analyst Team Leader and he's a professor in the School of Agriculture. Um, and many of you would have heard him on the radio talking about a range of topics. I don't know how he gets his head around them all, but I've asked Ross to talk about, I guess, the history of downturns and what it means for agriculture and challenge him to do that in 10 minutes, which I don't know how fair I've been, but um, I'll hand over to Ross and um, drive the presentation slides as he tells me to move them forward. Okay, um, it's thanks. Just, it's just on the ad, not the presentation. Oh, yep, perfect. Okay, so this 10 minute presentation is to draw your attention to things that are worth noting uh, that might help drive your business forward over the next decade. So next slide. So forget about the title of the slide for the moment and just look at the slide itself. The light blue line displays what has happened to the uh, change of, of growth in the economy. So the global economy was tracking along in the early 90s at around about two and a half to three percent annual growth rate. We got to 2007 and we were peaking at about five and a half percent annual growth in the global economy. The global financial crisis hit and we went down to zero growth, slightly negative. And it took about two to three years to recover from the global financial crisis. Now, COVID-19 isn't a financial crisis as much as a health crisis, but it's useful to look at the fact that as we are currently experiencing, there can be huge economic implications of a health crisis such as the COVID-19 and some sectors are impacted more than others. But when you look at agriculture, which is that dark blue line, and that just tracks the global trade of agricultural commodities, trade continued without much interruption through a hugely negative global financial crisis. And that leads me to the heading that we in WA mostly produce food grains. So we produce things that people need every day. We're not in the business of producing luxury commodities. We don't produce things that are subject to discretionary purchases. We produce the things that people need every day. And that's why even in the face of a crisis, what we produce on our farms largely continues to be demanded. Now that's not to say that there's going to be some hiccups and important commodities more affected than others, but overall agriculture is one of the few sectors that is largely insulated 
from the economic downturn. Whereas other sectors like travel, tourism, restauranting, any of the food services businesses have been hugely hammered. So next slide. So the main commodity we produce in WA is wheat. And as the previous slide was trying to show, that we're mostly in the food business, that the wheat that we grow, 70% of it ends up being used as food. And because of that, because we produce wheat rather than corn, we're fortunately insulated from some of the worst consequences that we're seeing around the globe with respect to COVID-19. So what the COVID-19 crisis is doing is that it's stripping nations of their income, particularly through job losses, household income is diminishing. People can no longer afford discretionary purchases, so they bunker down and they curtail their expenditure and they restrict it to the things that they most need, one of which is food. So next slide. Having said that our main commodity is wheat, and, and in some ways we're insulated from the worst of the downturn because we produce a food grain, nonetheless, wheat is priced, and I'm sure May will come to this, wheat inevitably is priced off major grains like corn. And when you have a downturn that affects the, the demand for, for corn, and, and this has been explained by a number of speakers over the radio that with low oil prices, that means there's a reduced demand for ethanol. That means in turn, there's a reduced demand for corn and that flows through to a fall in the price of corn and the extent to which corn and wheat are in some way substitutes, certainly they are when it comes to the feed uses of wheat and corn, then there's a curtailing of wheat prices and I'm sure May will talk about this but new season crop prices are well off the highs that we've seen earlier this year. But besides wheat we also produce sheep and wool and cattle and some of those commodities are more like discretionary goods where people can choose to go without those. They're, they're not perceived to be necessities. So next slide. So the bad news is really the wool news. Wool prices have fallen significantly this year and they're expected to worsen. Oil is really cheap at the moment and oil serves as a basis for synthetics and synthetics are an alternative to wool in many situations. So you have 50% of wool being passed in currently at auction due to lack of demand. There's already 300,000 bales of wool stockpiled in Australia. And unless people sell a lot of sheep and don't replace them, then we're going to continue to be producing a lot of wool in Australia. So the supply side is going to continue, particularly with the breaking of the drought in Eastern Australia, there's still very good prices for lamb meat and sheep meat. So those prices 
are holding up. Those sheep are going to be producing wool. We're going to have continued supply of wool, but still we're going to have a curtailed demand for wool because people's incomes have been reduced and wool is perceived to be more of a discretionary product. Uh, having said that, there's Eastern States farmers who, whether they like to or not, are going to have to sell their wool because they're so starved of cash, having come out of a, a couple of years of drought and they need money in the door. So wool will be sold at low prices to provide cash into some of those businesses because they, they don't have the appetite or ability to store it. Next slide. Having painted some bleak news for wool, I think we need to bear in mind that agriculture is subject to potential uplift in coming years. So this is a chart that compares 180 nations across the globe and it looks at their per capita GDP, that's if you like the, the per capita wealthiness of individuals in that society, that's along the bottom. And up the top is what each of those people spend each year on food and non-alcoholic beverages. And why this chart is interesting is that it says the richer people become, the more they spend on food, on non-alcoholic beverages. And we know that that world growth rate will recover and people individually will become richer. That's certainly been observed over the last 20 years in China, in Indonesia, we're observing it. So in Southeast Asia, you've got the twin guns at work in your favour. There's the gun of increasing populations. So we have population growth on our doorstep. Indonesia in the next decade is going to grow by 28 million people. Even in Australia, we're going to grow by another 5 million people over the next decade. So that's a lot more mouths on our doorstep that need to be fed over the next decade. And those people are getting richer, which means they're spending more on food. So that's, that's a really powerful good news story that you as farmers are participating in an emerging demand upswing for the very things that you produce. So next slide. So this is the, more of this better news. I, I've mentioned how there's more Australians, there's going to be more Indonesians. The Indonesian economy is becoming so wealthy that it's going to become the fifth largest economy in the world by 2030 in terms of its GDP. It's going to be more wealthy than UK and Germany. That, that doesn't mean that the individuals in that country are going to be individually wealthy, but because there's so many Indonesians and their, their wealth is growing so quickly, they're going to be bigger economies than the UK and Germany. And there's going to be 120 million middle-class Indonesians by 2030. And middle-class people tend to have food preferences that suit the exact sort of products that we produce in Australia. So next slide. So then you've got the, the global meat 
consumers. This is um, on our doorstep. You've got China with a burgeoning demand for meat, same in Indonesia. So next slide. This is a slide where I was saying there's going to be another 5 million Australians. And this is a chart that looks at what meat eaters are actually consuming through time. And what's happened in Australia is that we've moved from back in the 1970s where our main meats were beef and sheep to now the most popular meats are chicken and pork. Globally, that's a similar story in that pork and chicken globally are the main meats consumed. Often beef is seen as a bit of a luxury good, same with lamb. Now, why that is important, and Tim Haynes asks, is this driven from prices? And the answer is yes, that what has reduced our lamb and beef consumption are its prices. So if, if you want to, in a household, spend your meat money best, what's your biggest bang for buck? It's to buy chicken and pork. And why that's important for us in Western Australia is that the most popular meats are the meats that depend on grain. Chicken and pork are both grain fed. Beef globally increasingly is shifting to being a grain fed meat product. So that's good news for us. As people get richer, they eat more meat. And because of the meats that they eat, they actually need a lot more grain. So it, it takes about a kilo and a half of grain to make a kilo of chicken meat now. It, it takes anywhere from seven to 10 kilos of grain to make a kilogram of beef. So chicken and pork are really efficient at converting grain into their meats. But as I said, that's, that's a good sign for us that as people get richer, as they get more populous, they're going to demand more feed grains. Next slide. So what are my key messages? My key messages are, you know, yes, over the next year, we're in for a bad trot and some commodities like wool are going to get hammered and are being hammered. But if you lift your eyes above that horizon of the next year or two years, the international outlook and even the national outlook for me remains a very bright one for agriculture. So I think if you're driving a business strategically, I think it's important to be mindful of that big longer term picture. And yes, by all means, be reactive to short term considerations, but never lose track of what's going to fundamentally drive your business in the future. That's it. Thanks. Great, Ross. That was uh, uh, very succinct and uh, it's a good message for us. Uh, so uh, really good. Now, while I was sharing that, I couldn't see any of the questions. Are there any questions that need to be passed on, mate? 
Sorry, May. Can you see that question there from Matt? Hmm. Uh, yep, there's one from Matt. Uh, will Australia go into, re into recession and depression and what will happen to inflation? Okay, assuming you can hear me, my answer to that is that we will go into recession, into a, certainly a technical recession. I don't think we will go into a depression. I think the government wisely has stepped in and allocated a lot of demand through paying people. Uh, that borrowing that the government has done to try and stimulate economic activity will serve the national economy very well. Um, I think we're also, as a nation, handling the crisis very well. And I think we are likely to be in the vanguard of those nations that can successfully re-emerge. Um, we haven't had to deal with the, the consequences of the spread of the virus as Europe and USA has. So I think we've got out of this relatively unscathed compared to a lot of other economies. And already there are signs in China that their demand is beginning to re-engage. There's greater movement at port in factories. So their demand will only benefit us in the sorts of commodities that we trade with them. Oh, and the effect on the Aussie dollar, um, you know, we saw the Aussie dollar get down to 55 cents. Um, it's been trending upwards. I think it was about 65 today. If anything, I think the Aussie dollar will appreciate further this year, uh, just because we are a better place to piggyback on the re-emergence of China. Great. Ross, well, thank you. In the um, interest of keeping our, us, us succinct, I think we will finish uh, the questions there. I'll just have one quick question then, if that's all right. Hey, Matt, yeah, sure. Ross, in the economic cycle, where are, oh, interest rates is probably the most, what I'm most concerned about, I guess. Um, obviously, they're extremely low, negative um, mm. in effect at the moment. Um, and then following that, if the economy does stimulate, you know, we get out of this COVID, you know, there'll be some, you know, rapid economic activity. Will that will that cause a rise in inflation and following that perhaps pressure on, on interest rates? What are your thoughts going forward for interest rates? I think interest rates are going to stay low for a long time, just because a lot of economies are um, going into quantitative easy. That is, they're basically pumping liquidity into the system. Interest rates will, for that reason, stay low. There's sufficient unemployment around to keep the lid on wage inflation and therefore general inflation. I think uh, the other issue is that the, the politicians would be bending over backwards given the level of household debt in Australia to ensure that interest rates stay low because uh, people with their mortgages literally cannot afford a hike in interest rates. It, it would be at a, a family level disastrous for many families if we went back to double digit interest rates. All right. Thank you, Ross. Um, you've gone out on a limb um, because uh, 
I've asked an economist a question about the interest rate. Moving on to the bank analyst, uh, I've given him, I've charged him with the uh, the opportunity to talk about uh, a range of things, including interest rates. So let's hope um, he agrees. Um, otherwise, uh, we can have an online fight, which would be uh, enjoyable. Um, so I'd like to introduce. Uh, thank you very much, Ross, and we'll um, come back and uh, thank you at the end of the session. That was a very informative session. So I'd like to introduce uh, Tim Hunt. Um, he's the General Manager of Rabo Food and Agribusiness Division in Australia. Um, and I've really given him the simple task of talking about uh, interest rates, um, exchange rates and land values and hopefully uh, trying to stretch it into what that means for estimates farmers. So. Uh, um, it's a good segue from Ross to move to Tim, so I'll uh, hand over to you, Tim. Alrighty, thanks, Ben. And Ben, you can hear me and you can see my slides? See your slides well and hear you clearly. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much. So uh, we're expecting this to result in a deep global recession and a slow recovery. So um, apologies for, for our bearishness up front. Um, starting with what's driving a lot of this, uh, the, the, the virus is still obviously rising in terms of infections around the world. The problem really is not the virus itself um, in terms of the economic impact, uh, it's the government response to that. And what we have at the moment is almost most of the world in lockdown. Uh, in this chart, we're uh, looking at uh, sequential rates of lockdown around the world. Um, 30th of January, it was only China that had constraints on movements um, and um, operations of industry as they tried to contain the virus. 28th of February, this had got out into Italy in particular, Iran, South Korea, and we started to see lockdowns start to emerge and get stronger in those countries. By 15th of March, this had spread to North and South America, throughout Europe, and uh, parts of um, Latin America, um, sorry, North Africa. And again, looking, these are looking at lockdowns. Uh, economies were starting to go into lockdown. And by 30th of March, uh, literally billions of people, more than half the world's population, was asked not to leave their home in their countries. Non-essential industries were shut down. Um, we have, don't have an update of this uh, specific data um, from Oxford, where it comes from, uh, but I can tell you that in April 30, we are starting to see easing of restrictions in China, in Australia, New Zealand, some parts of Western Europe. But these will be slow, and we should bear in mind most economies substantially are locked down at present. So if you lock down an economy, not surprisingly, it starts to do damage through a range of different channels. Uh, tourism, travel, hospitality, entertainment, basically service industry uh, collapses. Uh, you close all manufacturing that's not essential. Supply chains get disrupted. Even if you're trying to make food, you might run out of plastics product uh, for packaging, for example. Uh, trade falls heavily. Uh, perhaps not so much in agriculture, as Reuters has mentioned, um, but South Korea for the first three weeks of this month has reported a 27% year-on-year traction in trade, and they're seen as a bellwether of global trade. So there's a lot less buying and selling of products going on in the world. 
Commodity prices are falling, which is a problem for ag exporters and iron ore and mineral exporters. And money is being pulled out of emerging markets because people are concerned about risk. So all these things look bad, but the rub hit the road, hits the road for, for ag producers uh, through, the, through the reduced income uh, uh, effects. Um, as we flick around a few slides here, um, when, when we see um, falling uh, paychecks uh, as people's pay is reduced or their hours are reduced, or finally they simply become unemployed as 26 million uh, Americans have in the last four weeks alone. In terms of uh, how this impacts the food industry, different countries are at different stages of this largely because where they are with lockdown so here we got a graphic that i'm going to overlay starting with outbreak where actually this can feel quite good for the food industry because you have panic buying and we've seen categories like dairy in australia have the best ever month they've had uh, through uh, march as people rush out and fill the pantries because they're worried about running out of food but that soon turns into a problem as food service gets shut down, people stop stocking out, um, starts getting worse as people's incomes fall. And finally, we emerge from the shutdown. We can go out again, we can buy a McDonald's hamburger, but people have less money to do so. So it feels like a weak recovery. Now, China and Australia are at the recovery end of this spectrum. Lockdown is easing industries are starting to get going again. Although what recovery is, is important to put context. For example, Starbucks, which sells and buys mainly milk and sells coffee around the world, in China reported in February, sales were down 90% year on year. Now they say things are a lot better in late March. Well, you know what that means? That means 40% sales are down. That's disaster for any company. And they're looking forward optimistically to the coming quarter and saying, we hope only to be down a third. So China is getting less worse. We're heading in the right direction, but it's a frightening shortfall on where we were 12 months ago with our key agricultural market. Uh, UK, Italy and Spain um, are still amidst this. USA and Philippines even further back. And there are countries, really big countries like Russia, Indonesia, Brazil, South Africa, who are only just entering uh, this spectrum. So please bear in mind when you read the news on China, Australia, that China is an important market. Australia also for a number of things we produce. But the problem is that most countries in the world uh, live in this part of the spectrum. Um, and more than live in this better part of the spectrum. So most people think um, that things are still getting worse at the moment globally, and they'll start to get better in coming months, but we, we are at a very bad point of this crisis. This will be, in our view, much worse than GFC. Um, Ross has outlined um, uh, what the GFC uh, look like, um, and we see there in, in um, the columns represent global GDP growth that uh, grew uh, contracted in the GFC. Um, we expect uh, that to contract by 2.6% in the current year. Uh, so about five times worse than we saw in the financial crisis. Um, 
for China, which is such a key market for a lot of our products, not so much wheat, but key to our economy and the world's economy, uh, an economy that was growing 6% last year, we expect to grow a little percent over 1% this year. So really unprecedented, uh, certainly in my lifetime. Um, in terms of what this looks like uh, going forward, we do expect as we uh, that, that most countries will be locked down for about three months. We're, we're about halfway through that in many countries. Um, the economy starts to slowly improve as we exit lockdown, uh, but it's not really until 2021 that things start to feel better. We're looking for a 5% recovery in the world economy, which sounds fantastic, but it's a little bit of what we call a dead cat bounce, which is if you throw something hard enough down, it tends to bounce up even if it's not really a bouncing material. Um, so 2021 is unlikely to feel uh, like it's party time, even though there's a 5% growth rate in front of it. Um, not surprisingly, uh, through all this, uh, markets have been hit um, pretty hard um, by, by the, these, these downturns. Um, and if we look at here, an index of um, uh, firstly the, the US stock market, um, in brown it's uh, Brent oil, and in, in black it's yields on US treasury bonds, which fall um, when people want to buy treasury bonds because they're willing to hold them for, for almost no return because it's safe. Um, what we see is quite a heavy contraction um, in, in those um, uh, in those indices, um, with in particular uh, oil and um, the yields on treasury bonds down almost 30% since this crisis hit. Ag has not been immune to that. As Ron mentioned, uh, consumption tends to hold up pretty well. The problem often is we have to drop the prices to clear that product um, because food grade wheat is one thing, um, but if you're selling other products, even a small uh, reduction in demand uh, leads to accumulation of stocks around the world uh, because producers keep producing. So uh, wheat on the CME is only off about 10% since this crisis start. Um, draw US dollar prices. Um, imported meat prices down about 15% into the US. Uh, we move into cotton and, and wool and, and we're down there sort of 20-25% and it's been hit the most because when the oil price tanks, Brazilians turn cane into sugar and not ethanol anymore. So um, substantial damage done to US dollar ag prices. Now the thing that we have going for us, or at least had going for us until two weeks ago, was that typically when things go bad with the world economy, the Aussie dollar gets traded down. It well marked economic growth risk and particular Chinese growth and risk. Uh, we were seeing through the first part of this crisis as the virus spread, economy shut down, investors were very scared. Money um, pulled out of Aussie dollar assets, put into the US and our currency fell from 70 cents at the start of the year to 55. Fantastic, because it's a lot more competitive. Unfortunately, markets have been gripped by optimism. China's better, 
Australia's getting better, uh, sex equities are, are booming. Um, they're feeling like um, they want to take on risk, Aussie dollars back up again. We have real problems with the fundamental logic of that. It is the market, uh, but we expect a correction there and look for the Aussie dollar to come back down to around 60 cents uh, by the middle of this year and, and sort of not reach higher than 62 cents 12 months by now. We, we think the optimism is overinflated here. Uh, in terms of um, uh, Australian interest rates, which, which was a question that came up before, I agree entirely with Ross. Um, very low for a number of years. Uh, we have had low interest rates really since the financial crisis um, in, in 2008 09. Um, seeing no ability to grow the world's economy if we increase interest rates. And we're going to come out of this crisis with a lot of slack in the Australian economy. We're back to fall 3% this year, which is a very convincing recession. Um, there'll be spare, spare people to go into work. There'll be spare capacity at factories. We'll be able to grow quite a lot without stressing our economy, generating inflation and needing to increase interest rates. The one caveat to that is this is the central bank interest rate and this heavily influences things like deposits, which are about half the funding of major Australian banks. But banks also get funding from wholesale markets. And what is happening in those wholesale markets is the cost of funding is going not because of lack of liquidity, there's plenty of that, but because people are concerned about the credit worthiness of what banks are lending to. So they want more money in return if they're going to fund banks. So overnight cash flow for many years. Costs are going up a bit, um, but we don't think we're likely to see anything but an aggregate um, low interest rate. Um, for, for years to come. Uh, in terms of, um, in just feeding to my last comment on land prices, um, to, to do that, we need to explain what we think about Australian agriculture uh, more generally. Uh, we do think Australian ag will largely weather this storm. Uh, we have negatives around the world, such as falling incomes, contracting food service, logistical disruptions, all of which are pushing US dollar pricing down. But we're lucky in Australia to have a number of offsets. We come into this period with low local stocks of grains, low herds um, because of, of years of drought. There is falling. There are other factors in the world market like swine fever that's keeping uh, animal protein supplies very tight uh, and competitive disruptions. Uh, it's one thing to produce grains. Argentina and Brazil are having trouble getting it out of ports into the market and places like Ukraine and Russia are actually threatening to withhold them to the market. Um, so those things are keeping the grains market tighter than otherwise. Given those low interest rates, what we think will be uh, will be a less good year for Australian ag than it would have been, uh, but but should be largely above cost production in most sectors, well above in grains. We don't expect land prices to contract significantly. Uh, on that left-hand panel, we're looking at an index of farm ag land values around the country. 
We did see in the financial crisis that came off 4%. It continued to fall, but we put that largely drowned down to drought. Uh, we already expected this rapid rise we've seen in ag loan prices since about 2012 to run out of steam uh, in 2020 and 21. Uh, but we, that case strengthens, but we don't, don't expect to see a significant downturn. Um, somewhat differently from the GFC, we think operating profits will hold up okay for, for most farm businesses. Interest rates will be low and we think credit will be available, which was different in the GFC. Foreign in, uh, investment appetite remains in place and other asset classes just don't look pretty when you're looking at where you might put your money in the coming couple of years. So to, to summarise, Ben, um, we are Unfortunately, if we're right, looking at a severe global recession and the recovery is going to feel slow from this. Uh, we have seen a rally in the Aussie dollar. We do think that will unwind and we'd really like to see that to keep ourselves competitive in world markets. Uh, the overnight cash rate, rate low for years, little bit increase in funding costs for banks, but we should still see what you'd regard as low interest rates. In that sort of situation, Australian ag should weather the storm and that should help insulate land prices from a major correction. Thanks, Ben. I didn't see any questions come up as I went, uh, but if they're there, I'm happy to try my arm at them. Oh. Has anyone got any uh, questions? On... There we go. actually having trouble seeing them. I think I'm in a private chat section. I can't get out of it. Uh, May, if there's any questions that I'm There missing. was one question that came in earlier, Ben, from Matt, which I can take on uh, prices of, of fertilizer chemicals. Um, obviously a falling Aussie dollar is going to be inflationary for those um, uh, ag chems and fertilizers. Having said that, we do see world markets uh, pretty well supplied. And very importantly, uh, we do see um, uh, concerns are dissipating about our ability to bring out uh, glyphosate and, and, and urea and other key chemicals um, from China. Um, our, our business in China tells us that the factories are opening again, the logistics are running again, and, and we think we should avoid major issues on that front. Uh, great, Tim. Can you see the question from Eric? Um, he's saying, if everyone's bearish on long-term interest rates, uh, is it worth a punt on fixing a good portion of it, on you know, of your debt? Yeah, I, I, I cannot legally provide financial advice. I can say that that uh, with those long-term rates look um, pretty low at the moment. Um, I don't expect them to increase substantially, um, but I can't offer you that guarantee. Um, and, and economists have been wrong before. So um, it's as far as I can go. Great, any other questions for Tim? So, all right, maybe maybe at the end. So thanks very much, Tim. I did amb ambush Tim a little, I asked him to 
do this presentation to the webinar. Um, and then I told him it was six o'clock WA time and Tim, I think, resides in uh, in Sydney. So uh, thanks very much. It's getting pretty late over there and uh, I appreciate you uh, staying up and uh, presenting that. It's, uh, uh, a very complex subject that you've presented to us succinctly, so thank you. Rightio, okay, lastly, uh, I'll hand over to May. Uh, we're going local now. May's recently moved to Esperance. Not that I've seen her, we're isolating, and she's isolating in her house. Um, but I thought, thought it would be good to bring it back. Um, we've gone big picture world and history, uh, what it means for some of the fundamentals for farming and then bring it back to you know the, some of the things you can do now and probably one of the main things that people are doing now uh, is considering grain marketing. So put it, putting that in perspective uh, from May. No worries, thanks Ben. Um, you can see that presentation and hear me okay? Yep. Beautiful. Okay, well, I, I am allowed to give financial advice. Um, so, but a part of that, I need to give you the general advice disclaimer. So uh, anything we do talk about tonight, it is just general advice. Uh, if you go ahead and do what I say, uh, make sure you get some personal uh, advice individual to your circumstances first. Um, so to, to cover the markets quickly, I'm um, going to go through a series of C words. Um, so the first one is the obvious one, the word, word that we're uh, all most using at the moment, coronavirus. So um, what does that mean for grain marketing? Um, the only thing that is absolutely certain is uncertainty. Um, so what impact is it going to have on demand? Uh, usually when we're talking about grain marketing, uh, we really just focus on supply. So what crop failures happened here? What crop failures happened there? Barely, barely mentioned demand. Um, you know, things like wheat, it just demand tends to be just a very boring, uh, very slow upward slope over time. So um, a demand shock is certainly something new for us uh, to be talking about. Um, so things like, you know, um, are, are poor countries going to be able to afford to buy uh, what we grow? Um, a lot of the, uh, you know, the Middle Eastern countries that rely on crude oil don't have quite as many uh, uh, monetary supplies as they, as they used to have. Um, and also just the, the overall change. So, um, so you know, uh, we will get to a new normal um, after coronavirus, but what is that going to look like? Um, and, you know, that, that is an uncertainty. So I was reading something today about um, uh, one of the places in China that has now come out of lockdown. Um, and, you know, so we, we all saw in the news when China was in lockdown in the big cities, there was no pollution, um, you know, no smog. Um, uh, so they've all come out of lockdown gone back to work um, and there's actually more congestion now than there was before coronavirus uh, because they don't want to hop onto crowded public transport they all want to drive their own individual cars and stay away from everyone else's germs so um, you know that uh, so there's going to be more pollution there's more demand for diesel what does that mean for oil prices so in the agriculture space you know are uh, uh, when things go back to normal, are we all going to want to go out to crowded restaurants around the whole world? Um, you know, is it going to be a switch to, to more home cooking? Um, and just seeing the, you know, the the, the difference um, in in demand for, for different kinds of uh, foods between those things. 
Um, both Tim and Ross have talked about the fact that we're going into a recession whether we like it or not. Um, and historically, soft commodities, grain futures do not go well during recessions. So potentially that's ahead of us. Um, on, the, on the bullish side of things, um, as Tim mentioned, uh, government interventions could get very interesting. And, you know, we already, we even saw it in Australia where, um, you know, our food security suddenly became a sexy topic to talk about and people were worried about food supply. Uh, you know, just, just imagine that, you know, the situation in Russia gets really bad during the heat of their virus event um, and they decide to uh, uh, not export a whole heap of wheat this coming year. Um, that would certainly send things alight. So um, that whole food security thing could, uh, could, could be really good news. Um, uh, and just uh, supply chains, what's going to happen doesn't matter how good the world price is um, if, we can't, if we can't actually uh, export it through our supply chains. Uh, second C word is conditions. Oh, that's a bit flash. Um, so this is uh, this is a month old, um, but this is crop conditions, like all crop conditions um, around the whole world. A month ago, uh, green is good, uh, red is bad. So a month ago, there weren't really any major um, crop uh, production issues. Uh, it has been dry through Europe and the Black Sea, and it has been frost um, in Kansas, in the US, in their hard red winter crop over the last month. So um, there will be some more negative colours there now than there was a month ago. Um, but um, at, at the end of the day, world world grade stocks are absolutely plentiful. Um, record world wheat stocks. Uh, we've got the, the first USDA look at um, 2021 global grain um, coming out on May the 12th. So that's about two weeks away. Um, so world wheat stocks are a record two, 292 million tonnes for last year. And people are talking about hitting 300 million tonnes this year. So absolute mo monstrous amounts of stocks. Um, however, I guess a, a little bit of good news where those stocks are located um, is a bit of better news. So um, if we look at just the stocks in the major exporters, so in countries like ourselves, Canada, the Black Sea, the US, the EU, Argentina, um, if you look at the stocks used for wheat, we are actually back down um, at, at really low numbers that we haven't seen since that kind of 06, 07, 08 period when we last had a really big, um, a big sustained rally in prices. So, um, so conditions are pretty, pretty good um, because the world stock level is so great. We really need a really big, um, big um, hit to those conditions um, to help prices. So um, we'll, um, we'll, you know, Northern Hemisphere, 90% of the world's wheat is in the Northern Hemisphere. We're pretty much going to know over the next month or so whether 90% of the world's wheat is, is okay or not, and it is looking okay at the moment. Um, so this is a, uh, moving on to another C word, crude oil. Uh, so the guys have talked about this a bit before, but this is an interesting one. So this is a direct comparison of wheat futures, so Chicago soft red winter um, and Brent crude um, futures over the last 20 years, looking at the, the correlations. So, um, uh, so uh, monthly averages. Um, in uh, in uh, statistical terms, if you have a correlation of 0.8 or above, that's considered a, you know, a strong correlation. Um, bearing in mind, correlation does not equal causation. Uh, the correlation of wheat futures and crude oil futures over the last 20 years has been 0.83. So an incredible uh, correlation. 
um, uh, between them. Now, uh, perhaps I'm a nervous Nelly Nana, um, but I'm looking at that crude oil crash over the last um, month or two over coronavirus and the wheat price hasn't fallen. And if you look back over the last, uh, those 20 years of prices, uh, whenever crude oil has fallen, uh, wheat has correlated with it and gone down with it. So uh, this, this particular chart does make me uh, pretty, pretty nervous at the moment. Um, hopefully they come back together with crude oil recovering, but it's hard to see that at the moment. Uh, this is corn futures and, and US wheat futures. Again, just Chicago um, corn and soft red winter. Um, so uh, corn green, uh, wheat blue. Um, again, a really strong correlation. And again, the end of that chart makes me really nervous. Uh, we've seen corn prices fall, you know, about half of the US corn crop these days goes to ethanol. So um, if it's not going to ethanol because that demand isn't there, suddenly we have an absolutely massive US corn stock problem um, on our hands and, uh, you know, government subsidies um, really um, just kind of disrupt the normal market signals that occur, you know, okay, um, corn's at, at basically its lowest point in the last decade corn prices are, so you would think US farmers wouldn't grow much corn this year. They're actually going to, looking at this stage, like they're going to plant an absolute heap of it, because by the time you get your US, your US government subsidies on top of it, it is still a very worthwhile exercise, even though the price is long. Uh, my second last C word is China. Um, so that, uh, that corn graph is not good news for barley. The other thing that we still have hanging over our heads with barley um, is the Chinese anti-dumping investigation. Uh, so the deadline for the anti-dumping bit of that is the 19th of May, which is only a couple of weeks away. Um, so I've certainly been looking at our politicians um, having their argy bargy with China in the news going, shh, say what you like from the 20th of May, but can you just shut up for the next couple of weeks? Uh, because, you know, this whole age of dumping thing, uh, I think it started over, you know, we supported Japan over one of those stupid little rock islands in the South China Sea when China thought we should have supported their claim to it. That's how this all uh, all started. So I, I think, you know, in the next couple of weeks, if, um, if our politicians can uh, just shush up um, with China, it's, it's not good timing. Uh, you can... Uh, Call me a cynic, but you could certainly see China um, deciding to come out and, uh, and and ban our barley in the next couple of weeks as retaliation. Uh, you know, essentially barley competes against corn, and I've shown you there's absolutely no no shortage of corn. So that uh, that does concern me greatly um, uh, with barley. Um, so my last C word: um, What on earth do we do with grain marketing at the moment? Um, so the effect of coronavirus on grain markets, no one knows. Um, uncertainty is the only certainty. Um, the way I think about it, you know, with all this uncertainty at the moment, imagine if you know the wheat price was 250 and feed barley was 200 and canola was 500 bucks a ton. You know, we'd be sitting there really stressed, kind of thinking, oh, you know, do you do you sell at a crappy price now just because? of all this uncertainty, we're worried about prices falling even further. Um, so if you look at it from that point of view, at the moment, um, key current prices in perspective, feed barley is still a decil 7, decil 8, canola is still decil 9, uh, wheat is still decil 8. So 
yes, we've got all this uncertainty going on, but what we do know at the moment is that wheat, barley, canola prices are decile seven, eight, nine, historically really strong prices. Um, so I, I think actually nothing changes despite all the world craziness. Um, doesn't mean you have to go crazy with it, um, with your grain marketing, just stick to your long-term plan. So if you're someone that hedges whatever, 30% of wheat by seeding, and you haven't done that yet this year because of the uncertainty, but I'd be looking at that now at current prices. You know, on the other side, if you're someone that never sells more than 10% before harvest, there's no need to go crazy and uh, go and hedge 80% 80, 80 of your crop now before it rains. Um, so carry on as normal, take advantage of the opportunities and the opportunities are certainly there at the moment. Um, and my last point would be just look over the horizon so that those opportunities are not just there for this year. Um, swaps are still around the 300 mark for next year. Um, you know, and there's been really good pricing for this year, for, for 21, 22 and for 22, 23. Um, so look at it. Um, Volatility is our friend in grain marketing. Um, we'd have pretty pretty rubbish prices most of the time if it weren't for volatility. So uh, look at the current craziness uh, as an opportunity uh, rather than being uh, too concerned about it. No one knows what's going to happen between now and the rest of harvest, but what we do know is today there's really good prices on offer and if you can safely do so, take advantage of it. That's it. Right, May. Uh, question from Ryan: Has canola taken its full hit, or and has the market built that all in, or is there more pain to come? Yeah, so um, so canola, uh, being an oil seed, is going to be tied into that whole uh, biofuels impacted by crude oil. So I reckon canola is being a good little battler at the moment, hanging in despite what's happened to crude oil. Um, a lot of that support from canola has come from the dryness through Europe that I talked about. Um, they're now starting to get some rain uh, pretty much as we speak. So uh, potentially if that rain does go through Europe, then some more um, some more come might come out of canola. Um, it was still six five in their spreads today which is a, a decile nine price so yeah if it, if it starts with a six i'm pretty happy to be selling it if it's safe great uh any further questions actually matt's got one about uh stocks held in china aren't most stocks held in china Yep, so of, um, of, of wheat, um, about half of world wheat stocks are held in China. So, you know, you, you look at it on the surface, isn't it? Approaching 300 million tonnes of world wheat stocks, about 150 million tonnes of that is in China. Um, so, but, you know, that's why when you look at the that major exporter chart, um, stocks are actually real in the major exporters are much lower. So, um, despite that, it's, you know, still no one thinks there's this massive shortage of wheat and that's been reflected in prices. There's still plenty of wheat but you know if we do get some major um, production issues or we have government intervention like a Russian export ban or something like that because of coronavirus um, then yeah you know uh, because so much of those stocks are held in China that can't be exported uh, things could could get really interesting but um, if, um, if we don't have a big production issue this year and we don't have the government regulation thing like a Russian export ban there's still plenty of stocks no matter how you how you cut the numbers up. Brilliant. All right, well, um, unless it's something that comes through in the chat, I reckon we're at a good place. We've done just over an hour. Um, actually, I'm amazed at how succinct and that we've kept to this uh, time. It's been a really uh, uh, valuable session and I'd just like to thank um, 
you all for participating, especially for the growers that have joined us. I know it's kind of a bad time in many ways, is seeding and end of the day and whatever. I just thought it was a timely thing to do. Um, and from from this end, it seems to have gone really well. And I think the, the breadth and calibre of the speakers we've had have been great and they've really hit the topic that I've, um, I was kind of cheeky with the topics I gave. I thought they were a pretty big ask, but um, I think we've done a really good job in um, um, kind of asking some of the fundamental things that uh, we in Esperance are asking. So um, really great. Um, so uh, nothing else on the chat line. I'd like to uh, thank everyone for participating. Um, I'm really keen for your feedback uh, at a later date or by email or any which way you can. Uh, we can certainly do this again. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just been, a, as I say, you know, from a crisis, um, um, you can uh, develop new ways. And I know internally within, within Farmanco, we're going to look to using more of this type of technology for just internal use. So um, I think we should probably also do that uh, with our clients. But I think to finish, it's really, um, although it's all scary and there's lots of change, people locally in uh, have been handling it very well and doing things um, you know, making decisions on the run. The fundamentals are still threatening, but, um, you know, I think everything we've heard today still uh, allows us to think that farming's a pretty good place to be. And um, it's, um, I love living in Esperance, and I think farming, um, farming is, uh, has got some very positive uh, signals going forward. So thank you, and uh, we'll sign off. Goodbye to everyone. We're waving. Thanks, Ben. See ya. See ya. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for the It was great. That's a big map there. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Thank <laughs> you.